You should have your outlines in front of you. We are on part three of a series we've been doing on the majesty of Jesus. And it's just been a rich series. I really appreciate Kyle last week talking about the cross. And, uh, and so tonight, we're just going to keep going this direction, focusing on the man Christ Jesus, looking at him who is that plumb line of truth and allowing our hearts to get calibrated to him. And then from there, everything else makes sense. So uh, look at your outline there, and I just want to give a few thoughts and introduction. Um, We're we're talking about the knowledge of Jesus, and so when we're we're thinking about knowing anything, uh, the key point is this. We can't accurately esteem the value of anything if we don't know what it is. If we don't know what the thing is, there's no way we can value it. Let me give you an example. I have here in my hand about a four gram object. From the back of the room, you probably can't really even see it. But uh, if I told you that this was painite, it's painite, it still means absolutely nothing to you. Because as far as you can tell, that you don't know what painite is. Anybody in the room know what it is? Didn't think so. And, and so it, because you lack the knowledge of what painite is, you, you, you don't have any value for it. You don't have any worth for it. But if I told you that painite is one of the most rare, uh, it's one of the most rare things in all the earth, there's only about... Uh, 25 to 30 occurrences of painite, this mineral. It's one of the most rare ones on the planet, and it goes for about $10,000 a gram. And so what I'm holding in my hand is worth about $40,000. Now, with a few sentences, you've come to find out, don't want to drop the painite, that what I'm holding is extremely extremely valuable because you got to know a little bit about it, right? Unfortunately, it really isn't painite. It's just a marble. (laughs) Worth about half a penny. (laughs) Somebody asked this morning, so is painite a thing? Yeah, it's a real thing. And it's really worth what I just said it is. And it really has only about 25 to 30 occurrences in, the, in all of the earth, it's one of the, the rarest minerals there is, and uh, they've just found another strand of it, another vein of it in Myanmar, which is where most of it's from. Anyway, the point becomes this. Unless we know the value of the thing, we will not accurately assess its worth, and it's only by gaining knowledge of a thing that we actually will value that thing for what it's worth. And, and so here's the deal. When we're talking about knowing and valuing Jesus... It's got to move for us beyond just details in our mind, and it has to move into a relational context. And here's why. Because Jesus isn't just a thing. Jesus is a person. He's a man who is God. And so because he's somebody, details in our mind don't suffice in, in calling our hearts into real revelation of him where we can actually uh, know him and value him properly. And so we have to have real relational 
personal, experiential knowledge of Jesus for us to rightly assess him. We have to have much more than just head knowledge. And this is where the boundary for most of us is. We have about 15 or 20 details that we know about Jesus. He's born of a virgin, Bethlehem, you know, from the line of David. Like we've got our sort of like Christmas story down. We got that he was 33 years. We got something about the cross. There was a resurrection involved. We might have a few miracles. But beyond the sort of handful of details, we're stuck because we lack relational understanding of Jesus. And so what happens for us is this. We, we think we know him because we got a handful of details down, but, but what we find out is he is the epitome of the proverbial iceberg. You only see and, and know about this much, and what's beneath the surface is far greater and far more intense than you've ever dreamed. But here's the truth of the matter. This is about as much as been revealed to us of Jesus, and we only know the very tip of the iceberg. And so what we're trying to do with this series is call our hearts into revelation, relational revelation, where we taste and see and encounter the truth of who he is and, and really come to a greater depth of, of the knowledge of Jesus. And, and, and so this is where we're heading tonight. I want to talk about the glory of Jesus, knowing Jesus and glorifying him properly glorifying him in a manner that is worthy of him. And so in considering these thoughts myself, I just, I just was faced with, with this truth. Do I glorify Jesus in a manner that is worthy of him? Now here's the thing. If in my mind, <clears throat> Jesus is just a little bit bigger than me, if I've made him just a little bit more than I am, and, and, and I think, well, I ascribe, you know, worth and honor to him, and yeah, you know, I glorify him, then, then I'll just brush away any, any idea that perhaps I don't actually know him, and maybe the honor that I'm ascribing to him isn't quite worth it, worth him. But if I see him vividly, if I actually get a real taste of who he really is, and I begin to see him for who he is, and, and, and the knowledge of him begins to explode on me, and I become overwhelmed with the truth of him, I, and, I, and I'm struck in wonder and awe at him as we should be, then the question of do I honor him, do I have affection for him, do I glorify him, then it has a much stronger sort of point on the end of it. And, and I would just say this, we, we would all say, I mean, heck, we sang it tonight. All is for your glory. We would all agree to that. We would hand out the, if we handed out the test tonight in the room and said multiple choice, is Jesus worth everything? Answer, yes. Here's the question. Is that the practical outflowing of our lives? Is that really the way we live? Is he really Worth everything. Is everything really for his glory? And so I'm holding that high view of glorifying Jesus up here. And I want to submit to you that we must grow richer in our knowledge of him. And it must go beyond 
a few details that we hold in our mind about him. It must turn into a relational interaction that informs our very being of our own uh, you know, status in life, of his worth, and our proper responses to him. Are you with me yet? I'll just keep talking. Maybe you'll catch up. I'm not looking for amens tonight because, you know what, I think I'm just going to cram your mouth full of stuff that you can just chew on. And you can just deal with it, and then, you know what, we'll high-five afterwards. All right. So, glorifying Jesus, that's what I'm talking about. Look at Roman numeral two. We're talking about glorifying God. What do we mean by glorifying God? In this context, we're not specifically speaking about his beauty, his power, his manifestation. We're not specifically speaking of glory and the expression of God's beauty or power. What we're talking about is glorifying him, giving him glory. That's what I want to deal with. And so a simple, simple definition of glorifying the Lord is this, giving him the honor and the affection do him. That's what I want to deal with for a moment. Glorifying God, giving him the honor and the affection, do him. So hold that thought here, and then let me ask you this question. What is most important to God? Don't answer, just think about it. What is the most important thing to God? You know, I was thinking about this. If I had my kids we sit down and we eat dinner together often. And, and if I said, okay, guys, tell me what's the most important thing to me, your father? What, as your dad, tell me what's the most important thing in my heart? I would hope that my kids could rightly express, express the, the deep things of my heart, that they would know what is the most important thing to me, which takes me to this point, like, do we actually know what is the most important thing to the heart of the Father? Do, do we know what his main thing is? Do we know what his main motivation is? Are we able to say with clarity, the Father is most passionate about this thing? Or do we know what that is? Now, I will give you a, a um, what I believe the Bible says, and I don't think it's just me. I think the scripture is very, very clear and vivid about his most important desire. Very clear. The Bible tells us that God has at the, I like this phrase I, I, I use, at the summit of his purposes. He has at the summit of his purposes an unyielding zeal for his own glory. Now, at a glimpse, you go, well, dang, he's a little self-centered. And I would say he is gloriously self-centered. Yes, he is. I have a friend. This is where I got this idea about the summit of God's purposes. I have a friend who's a little bit addicted to studying Mount Everest. And he's like, I'll never climb Mount Everest. But he's like, I'm a little bit addicted to it. And he said he's read like 20 books on Mount Everest. Do you know there's only handfuls of people that have ever uh, got to the summit on Mount Everest? And do you know that there's people that, that die like all the time trying to get to the top of Mount Everest? And did you know there's like five camps that you have to go through on the mountain 
that you have to have to go to one camp and then stay there for like weeks at a time so you can adjust. And then you go up some thousands of feet to another camp. You have to stay there and adjust. And there's like five camps that you have to actually stay at. And the whole thing takes months to actually be able to do the, the, the summit of Mount Everest. I mean, it's a colossal feat. We kind of have this giant mountain in our mind. We go, oh, you know, people just climb to the top. No, hardly anybody climbs to the top. There's one guy that's alive right now. He's made it to the top nine times. And I mean, there's people dying like annually that are trying this thing. They haven't even been able to do a summit run on Everest because there's only about two to three weeks a year where the, uh, the weather works for it. They haven't even been able to do a summit run in a couple years on the thing. So when I'm talking about the summit of God's purposes, I'm not saying it's his only purpose. I'm saying there's multiple things in the purposes of God, yet there's something that stands at the very top of the mountain in God's desires and God's purposes. And the thing that stands on the top of the mountain is his own glory. Now, I would just say this. When I've heard that preached in the past, I've kind of had like a little like, man, that seems kind of, you know, selfish and narcissistic and God, you know, he's like really focused on himself. Like, what's the deal with that? And, and I would just say this. It's not his only purpose, but it's his main one. But think this through for just a moment. God is the most glorious, right? So if God was trying to glorify anything above himself, that would be idolatry, wouldn't it? So it's only right in the divine heart that what stands at the summit of God's purposes is his own glory. It's this. It's the proper honor and affection given to God. Now look at the Bible. Look what it says here. Isaiah 48. He says this. And it's all through the the, the scripture. But here's a couple explicit ones. He goes, for my name's sake... I will defer my anger. He goes, I'm not going to judge you guys. And he doesn't say it's for your sake. He goes, it's for my sake. For my name's sake, I'll defer my anger. And for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake. I like how he does it twice, just in case you missed the first one. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. Look at Isaiah 43. He says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. And so the the purpose that's at at the crest of the summit of God's desires is his own glory. And and, and that right there, it, it should cause us to wrestle with, do we understand then how God goes about securing his own glory? Do we even get what he's into? Remember again, as a father asking his kids, what's the most important thing to me? Do we as his children know what he's into and what he's after, and do we know how he's going about it? And so it just begs the question, how does God go about securing 
his glory. Now, here's the thing. This is, this is the thing that gri- it just so grips my heart. God doesn't seek his own glory as one who is winning a contest or a race. In other words, if God wanted to force every human to honor him and give him the proper affections, he could show up as a 500-foot bodybuilder guy and start smashing people until all of us said, okay, you win. You, you're, you're the biggest, baddest bodybuilder God around. We, we give you the glory. We're all absolutely afraid of you. All glory to you. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he requires that his own glorification happen through the context of relationship, through the transmitter of love. Now think about this for a minute. The one who is from everlasting to everlasting, the one who is uncreated, perfect in all his ways, He's existed forever. He is forever. He requires that his own glorification happen through the context of relationship by the means of love. Remember, we define glory as giving him honor and affection recognizing his worth and ascribing it to him and loving him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So God, he, he makes the focus of, of, of how glory happens, this issue of relationship and love, which then puts the proper perspective on the first and great commandment, which is what Jesus said. Look at Matthew 22 right there. When Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment? He answers this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. I was talking with my wife about this point. And there it is. God's own desire for his own glory is at the summit of his purposes. It's not his only purpose. It's just his, his, his chief one. And wrapped into that purpose, he makes relationship and love a part of it. And so, the God who is love loves us so that we will love him And that whole encounter of us fully loving him, fully abandoning our hearts to him, is called giving him glory. (laughs) Oh, that all humanity would glorify God, would honor him, and give him the glory due him. Because what kind of a God is this who demands 
that he doesn't win the glory contest as the greatest, biggest one among us. Who is this God that requires that his own glorification happen through love from human hearts? Who is this? And then, why do we love him? Because he first loves us. So weaving into the purposes for his own glory, he puts the relational avenue of love to and from humanity. Do we have any idea who we're dealing with right now? The uncreated God, all-powerful, creates everything with words. And he requires that his own glorification happen through relationship and love. This issue of glory, it's an interesting thing. You know, we, we, are easily, uh, we easily answer the questions right. If I were to ask, does Jesus deserve all the glory? We'd say, sure. Does, does God, does he deserve all the glory? Absolutely. But then I think about our own propensity. I think about, okay, let me just talk about myself. I think about my own propensity to take glory when it's available. Give you a real human, easy example. In the house, the man of God, being a poured out lover, a laid down servant. Who cleaned up the den? Well, your poured out lover did, babe. I did. I'm a laid down lover right here. I just did to serve and be a blessing in the house. Uh, praise God. Glory to God. And how quickly we will grab some of the glory. We'll even grab the glory and then say, glory to God. Does he deserve all of it? See, if we don't know him, we won't value him properly. And we will imagine that we can give him a little honor, a little bit of our affections, and keep a little bit of it in our pocket for ourselves. Me time. My stuff. What I want. My privileges. My preferences. My destiny. My purpose. What about his purpose? What about his calling? See, in Christianity, we've got this battle right now between people going after their calling and going after the hope of his calling. Hopefully, whatever your calling is, it is submitted to his calling because if it's not, it's not in the kingdom. Ultimately, it's this. All the glory to you, all the honor to you, all the affections to you. Why? Because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. Now, here's the thing. If we don't know him, we won't see him, we won't assess him properly, and we will not know his worth. And therefore, it'll be a wrestle for us, and we will ascribe to ourselves worth over what we ascribe to him. 
But in light of who he is, when we see him as he is, we will think of him in a proper way. And then the proper response is a poured out life that goes after his glory above everything else. Honor and affection to him above everything. Amen. And he's the one that says, yeah, I want that, but only, only through the transmitter of love. Only through the transmitter of love in relationship. Remember 1 Corinthians 13? He said, no matter what your works are, if they're without love, they're worthless. Clanging gong, banging cymbal, they're empty, they're hollow. They're shallow. So loving God with all of our heart, it's the way that we glorify God. But loveless work in the kingdom of God, it's completely worthless. The motivation must be love. It's got to be a heart compelled by love or it doesn't strike the chord of glory to him. Only work done out of a heart compelled by love brings him glory because he's not looking for crowns. He's looking for hearts. So then this brings us to the key point. How does God go about securing his own glory via a relational means? How? How does he do that? And here's what I would say. The crossroads of his desire for glory with his requirement that it be relational across the lines of love, those intersect in something called the incarnation. God's desire for glory and his requirement that it be in relationship, those two intersect on an individual Named Jesus. The incarnations, the apex of God's desire for both of those realities. God in the flesh. God in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the crossroads of God's desire for glory by relationship. Now look at these verses. I want to give some clarity then on who Jesus is so we can rightly esteem him and rightly give him the glory due his name. Because I'm afraid of this right now, that in the church we've made Jesus a little taller than us. He's like the eight foot tall guy that could slam dunk the basketball every time or something. We've made him that. Or our big brother. Instead of who he is, the Alpha and the Omega, Yahweh in the flesh, the one who holds eternity in his bosom, Jesus. So look what the scripture then says about Jesus. Colossians 1, I love this. Oh, I love this. He's the image of the invisible God. And I'm going to give you two other verses that say the same exact phrase. Image. He's uh, he's the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. 2 Corinthians 4.4. I love that Paul just throws the phrase in there in this context. He says, the minds of the God of the, uh, the God of this age has blinded who do not believe. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. See, this word image, 
It's not the way that we would think. We think of an image. We might think of an idol. Uh, I, I, I don't know. We might think of something, a, a picture, you know, a, a, an image, a, you know, one that kind of looks like the other but isn't. This word is much more the idea, it's the divine reflection. And so it's, it's kind of like this. This is a, a weak example, but you'll get it. Imagine God existing in the eternal past, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, God fully enjoying himself in perfect unity and harmony within himself, in perfect love and majesty. And it's as if the Father put a mirror before him and saw his image. And who he was in the mirror is who Jesus is in the incarnation. He's everything that the Father is wrapped up in a human frame, wrapped up in skin and bone and flesh. He's Yahweh incarnate. He is the image of God in the flesh. So much so, that there at the end of, of Jesus' life, they're questioning him. The disciples don't get him. They're, they don't get the cross yet. They don't understand things yet. So, he, he's so much God that when Philip says to him, hey, I'll tell you what, show us the Father and we're on your team. And Jesus just goes, you don't really get this yet, do you? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Can you imagine that? I, I just, I, I always go back to the normal, the normal details of life, hanging out with Jesus. These guys hung out. Three and a half years, they hung out with Jesus. There he is at the dinner table. They're telling jokes and recounting stories and Jesus is the happiest guy at the table. He's the most joyful man that ever lived. He's laughing. He's belly laughing. He is, think about it. He's got all the normal stuff. Eyes, nose, mouth, ears, face. He's got a face. He's Yahweh and he's got a face. He's got eyeballs that are looking at them. He's got a heart beating with blood coursing through his body, veins and arteries and muscle and sinew and tissue and bone and skin and nails. He's got all of it. He's God, and he's hanging out at dinner and laughing about stuff. It's Yahweh. And you know, I know I said this a couple weeks ago, but you know there's just those moments when they just got... They just got too comfortable with him and they're laughing and they ribbed him and ha ha ha. And Jesus kind of just takes a moment of thoughtful repose and looks right through Peter's soul. And Peter goes, that's funny, huh? Why are you looking at me like that? Whoa, when you do that, it messes me up. I don't know what that, that was weird. Did you guys see that? Because I looked at him. And it didn't stop. 
what I looked into didn't stop. And they're like, Pete, chill. Jesus, you guys didn't see what I saw. And Jesus kind of winks at him. You're so cute, Pete. He loved to do that to Peter. He loved to do it to Peter because Peter freaked out the most. We're going to build tabernacles, one for you and Moses and Elijah. That's what we're going to It's okay. It's okay. It's Yahweh. It's Yahweh. And he's breathing with air going into his lungs. He's a human being. It's God in the flesh. He's the image of God. Let's consider some of the other ways that Jesus is identified as Yahweh. What are we doing? We're trying to understand glorifying him properly. And so how are we doing that? We're trying to know him more detailed in a more detailed way. And, and, and so then we can give him our affections more fully. Throughout the New Testament, there's a continual use of the divine name. Remember, Moses, he's at the burning bush. He gets encountered by God. He says, listen, Okay, I know you want me to go talk to, to the Egyptians and the children of Israel. Who do I say sent me? He says, tell them, I am that I am sent you. I love that. I am that I am. It just means the one who always is. Tell them the always sent you. And he says, tell them the Lord the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, in English, we use capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament. Whenever you see capital L-O-R-D, it's actually the divine name. He says, tell them that I am sent you, and tell them Yahweh sent you. The divine name that was so holy, it was ascribed as so holy by the Jews, they didn't even want to write it, they didn't even want to say it. And so in the Old Testament, we would use capital L-O-R-D, the Bible translators would. Now here's the thing. Jesus shows up, and he actually identifies himself as the I am. It's right there in John 8. They said, how, you know, they're asking him, he was saying some crazy stuff. He said, I saw Abraham's day, and I was glad. And they go, how could you see Abraham's day? You're not even 50 years old. And he said, well, before Abraham was always I am. And they began to want to stone him because they knew he was calling himself God. He called himself the son of God and they picked up stones to stone him because they knew that he was making himself equal with God. But there's even a bigger explanation of Jesus being identified with the divine name all throughout the New Testament that we don't get because we read it in English And we don't understand what a first century Jewish person would have understood. Here it is. You don't, this is, it's a little technical, but just follow me. We've mentioned this. Kyle mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but let me just give it to you again. When you see in English the word Lord in the New Testament, it's the Greek word kurios. Kurios, okay? It's the word that's used to translate the Old Testament word Yahweh. So when Yahweh shows up in the Old Testament, whenever they're quoting the New Testament passages that have that word in there, the Greek word kurios shows up. Does that make sense? 
And that's the word that we see L-O-R-D. Old Testament Yahweh is capital L-O-R-D. New Testament is just L-O-R-D. The Greek word is kurios. Kurios is the word to, 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 that's translated uh, from Yahweh, okay? It's very simple. Do you follow that? Do I need to say it again? Got it? Kurios is Yahweh. Kurios is translated Lord in the New Testament. Watch this. I'm in, I'm in Roman numeral three, Jesus identity. I'm in C. I was blown away when I saw this. Each of the gospels starts off with the proclamation that Jesus is Yahweh, each of them. Now, we would want it to be nice and tidy. You know, we want it, you know, in a Western mind, we just want it spelled out. Okay, tell me, is Jesus Christ uh, Yahweh? I want a sentence that says, Jesus Christ is Yahweh in the flesh. That's what we would want. You ever been doing evangelism and somebody goes, there's not a verse in the New Testament that says Jesus is God. There's not one. You ever had that? And they, and they, you know, they hammer that point because they want this, the Western version spelled out just like that, right? Well, the problem is, who are the first hearers of the gospel? The Jews, right? So they're going to hear it through the way that they hear things, not the way that Americans hear it. Couple thousand years later, isn't that right? So watch this. This is all through the New Testament. Jesus is called Yahweh all through the New Testament. Watch it. Isaiah 40. Y'all know this verse. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, capital L O R D, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Right? At the beginning of every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's the four times that verse appears at the very beginning of every one of the gospels. And it's saying that the voice who's crying to make straight or prepare the way for the Lord is John the Baptist. And it's also saying that the Lord is Jesus. In other words, if you read this originally, you'd say, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for Yahweh, making straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so then, when he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, this is what was written by Isaiah, and these words are fulfilled right now in the New Testament, what you would have to understand is, John the Baptist is the voice, and Jesus is Yahweh. I'm staring at that, going, I cannot believe I've missed this point. Because I want the Gospels to be explicit about Jesus' identity, and I'm thinking, I'm looking for the one phrase. You know, we got John 1, you know, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It's a little bit, you know, cryptic, but you can put it together. Okay, he's God. But we're missing massive statements like this where a Jewish mind would immediately get it. He's saying Jesus is Yahweh. The beginning of the Gospels ascribe deity to Jesus. He is Yahweh. Look at this one. The every knee will bow. You know the passage in Philippians 2, right? 
It comes from Isaiah 45. Kyle mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but the Lord says this, by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And here's what he says, to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Paul in Philippians quotes Isaiah 45, and here's what he says. Therefore, God has also highly exalted Jesus and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess. Here's the deal. Paul is quoting Isaiah 45, and he's saying, Jesus is the one that every knee will bow to, just like God prophesied through Isaiah. The point is huge. God is going after his own glory by becoming a man, and in relationship, calling everybody to receive his love and then respond to him with the love and the honor due him. Jesus is that man. He is the fulfillment of that. But let's take it even a step further. What does it say every tongue will confess? Jesus is, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. As a youth pastor for years doing tons of evangelism, you know, a bunch amongst young people, I used to say, you got to make Jesus your boss. So the Bible says, if you confess Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. And I used to quote Romans 10, 9, and 10 to him. So you got to make him your boss. you got to make him your boss, and, and, and you got to serve him like he's your boss. And, uh, and I would just say to you real loud and proud right now, that's not what Romans 10, 9, and 10 is saying. <laughs> and that's not what Philippians 2 is saying. What it's saying is every knee will bow to Yahweh as they bow to Jesus because Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Think it through. Every angel that's ever been created will bow the knee to Jesus. Every demon that's fallen will come before Jesus and bow to Jesus, a human being. Satan himself will bow down, prostrate before Jesus Christ and say, you are Yahweh. You are Yahweh. Every human being who has ever lived forever will come and bow down before Jesus because that human being is God from everlasting to everlasting. All the glory is due him. Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Yahweh. He is God. See, beloved, you and I, here's, here's our human dilemma. Some would call it a hot mess. I'll just call it the dilemma. It's this. We are absolutely filled with passions. We have desires that are insatiable and limitless. We hunger in ways that our soul can't even describe. 
We are longing, desirous, aching. We want, and we don't even know what we want. Do you know what I'm saying? We do crazy things because we want exhilaration. We want majesty. We want power and fire and glory and shock and beauty. We want terror. We want awesomeness. We do stupid stuff to try to touch that thing in our soul. We jump out of airplanes. We climb Mount Everest. We do craziness. Because the human condition is so jammed with desire. And we're always looking and groping and gasping and trying to find something more. And meanwhile, the something more that we're hardwired to desire is Jesus. Yahweh in the flesh has come to us to give us the satisfaction of our souls. And what our problem is, is we don't honor him rightly. We don't esteem him rightly. We don't know who he is and what he's worth. And therefore, we go all over the place trying to give our passions and desires to stuff that will never satisfy. The brokenness of the human condition is this. You're made for God and you don't know him. Because if you did... It would be so easy to give everything. All the desires on the inside are uniquely crafted to be satisfied by one person. Jesus. He's Yahweh. He's God in the flesh. And so when we rightly see him, we rightly understand who he is, all of a sudden, the story of God's desire for his own glory, all of a sudden, that desire begins to make sense because here's what the Father has required. Not only will it be through relational love, he has required that everything in creation is constricting around one human being. The entire story of all creation is moving in a funnel toward one individual, Jesus Christ. The Father is unrelenting about this point. His Son will receive the glory due Him. When the Lord returns, the the scripture says in Zechariah 14, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Father is acutely passionate about the hyper-exaltation of Jesus Christ because he's after glory. He requires it through love and relationship, but everything is moving towards Jesus Christ being exalted. He is the focal point. He is the focal point of all existence. And when we begin to see and we begin to understand things about why we're even here, why this, why this whole construct is even in place and where everything is moving. And I just started just spewing the notes on the last page. He requires that every living thing must bow its knee to Jesus Everything in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, all creation will bow. Everything is to him. It's all through him. It's all for him. He alone will have preeminence. 
I love John 5. John 5, Jesus says, the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. Why? That humanity would honor the Son as they honor the Father. When these thoughts begin to crystallize in us, we begin to properly esteem Jesus' worth. We begin to properly desire that he would receive all the glory, all the honor and the affections of our heart. All of it. All of it to him. And when that begins to crystallize for you, here's what you begin to realize. That Jesus Christ is enough to make your heart burn. He's enough to inflame you with passion. All those desires on the inside, he is the answer to all of them. He's enough to compel the human heart. The riches that he holds are enough to move you to abandonment. The knowledge of him is enough to cause one to throw at his feet everything, all their wealth and earthly gifts. He alone is enough to compel the human heart. He alone is enough to strike us with majesty, leaving us gasping for another touch another word, anything more of himself. He is the one we are uniquely made for and designed to respond to. The majesty of Christ is enough to compel us forever. And here's the point. When you see him rightly, you come to the logical conclusion that nothing is too precious for Jesus. Nothing is to be withheld from him. Nothing is more valuable than him. That he alone deserves all of it. He deserves all of our heart. All of our affection. All of our honor. And so when you see him the right way, obedience, radical obedience and abandonment is the most natural and normal thought. And our problem is we just haven't seen him. But oh, that he would open our eyes and we'd see him rightly. He would engage us and show us of himself. That we would truly give ourselves in complete abandonment as offerings to his name. Nothing is too precious for Jesus. Nothing is too important to be withheld from him. Nothing is too valuable to stand in the way of obedience to him. Just a glimpse of his inestimable worth, his incomparable majesty, his inconceivable beauty. And we come to this only logical conclusion that nothing is worth more than him. And nothing is worth holding back from him. Guys, we've got to see Jesus. Viewing life through the lens of him changes all of our pursuits changes the way we go about everything. Nothing is too precious for him. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Amen.